Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. My name is Kyle Krieger. Thrilled today uh, to be joined again by my co-host, Wilkie V. Law III. Will, how are you? I'm doing awesome, sir. How about yourself? Doing excellent. Uh, I was really, really happy for you. We talked a little bit yesterday about uh, your new school and, and all that, so we're going to get a little podcast going about that later on. But we are, we are super thrilled today to have our first uh, repeat guest. Liz Kleinrock is back with us to talk about her summer. Liz, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. Yeah, so we're we're excited. Um, we talked, I guess, gosh, it's probably been a few months since we talked the first time, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It was during last school year. Yeah, yeah, so we had a conversation about anti-bias and all that stuff, and, and we'll definitely dive a little bit back into that too, but we're excited to hear about... Uh, your trip to uh, to Africa this summer, we're, uh, I, like I said, I followed you on, on Instagram and it looked like just such an amazing experience, so we're excited to hear about it. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. Awesome. Awesome. Well, to get, to get, to get started, Liz, you know, for the, the listeners that might not have heard the, uh, the prior episode we did with you, um, could you just tell them a little bit of your backstory and, and why it was that you became a teacher? Sure. So um, I'm a transracial adoptee. I was born in South Korea and raised in Washington, D.C. Um, went to school in St. Louis, and that is where I decided that I wanted to try on teaching. Um, I wish I could say that, you know, it's something that I always knew I wanted to do when I was a little kid, but um, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be Mia Hamm and you know, the yellow power ranger combined into one person. Um, so I didn't really recognize that I wanted to work with kids until college when I started volunteering with, um, an school tutoring program and really just fell in love with working with them a couple of times a week. Um, so after college, I got a job with AmeriCorps and moved to Oakland and spent two years um, as an AmeriCorps volunteer working with students who were at risk, in particular for reading um, in their after-school program and also doing in-school intervention. And tried it on for two years and fell in love with it even more and decided that's what I want to do with my life and I've been doing it ever since. So teaching is actually the only job I've ever had. (laughs) I. I, I love I'm trying to picture a combination of the yellow Power Ranger and Mia Ham. I, I feel like she exists out there. I'm pretty sure. It'd be really it'd be a really cool Halloween costume to do like like the Power Rangers pants on the bottom and like a Mia Ham jersey on the top or vice versa. Keeps giving me a lot of good ideas for this upcoming year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's awesome. And so what is what exactly is Amer- like? What's the job of AmeriCorps? Because I've heard of it, but I'm not exactly f- familiar with what they do. AmeriCorps is awesome. Um, it's a way to participate in service um, in lots of different capacities in our country. Um, so what, I'm not sure if they've changed the process or system since I did it because that was back in 2009. Um, so you go onto their database and you can search by geographic area or different area of community service. Um, and it's kind of like a matching program. So you might submit your applications to different organizations and different places. And if they're interested in you, then you would interview with them. Um, so you could look up, you know, environmental groups in Colorado or educational groups in California or immigrant rights in New York, um, any of those different things. So it just provides, um, openings into a lot of different potential career paths and different ways to give back to the community. Awesome. 
Awesome. And, and lucky for you, education fit. Yeah, it did. Um, it was definitely a learning curve um, and a very humbling experience, but I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful for that. Mm. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, with your AmeriCorps experience and, and what you're doing teaching, what do you think the value is of a really great teacher? Teachers can do anything. I mean, we spend so many hours with our students, you know, five days a week from roughly like eight to three every single day. And in some cases, students might actually get more face time with you than they get with some of their family members. Um, a great teacher, I've been told, is the one who can open the doors to success and possibility for their students. Um, but ultimately, the student has to be the one to walk through that door. And that's a metaphor that I've really liked and I've grown very attached to over the past few years. Um, I think a great teacher can introduce a student to a new subject, make them fall in love with something for the rest of their lives, um, and to connect information and things that they know but might not see or understand that connection to um, without some guidance. Um, I think great teachers can just model what kind of what it means to be an active citizen, to be an engaged citizen, um, and how to demonstrate respect and trust and, you know, foster relationships with youth and communities who might otherwise not be as engaged. Mm. Awesome. You said something just now about um, that they almost, uh, teacher, great teachers open the doors to opportunities and success but it's the student's responsibility to walk through the doors. I love that metaphor. Could you talk a little bit more about how how do teachers build that sense of responsibility in students to to want to walk through those doors, to understand what it is and how, how they can transition into those positions? Yeah, so I cannot take credit for that metaphor. Um, I read it in a book. Um, believe it oh my goodness okay if I remember the name of it I will come back to it I promise um I think it's called real talk for real teachers that's it um and I read it at a time when I was really struggling with a student who had really severe behaviors um had dealt with a lot of trauma in his home outside of school and his community um and all those behaviors were manifesting in really negative ways in the classroom and it took a lot of reflection and a lot of time for me to recognize that as a teacher, I'm doing everything I can to support him within school, but I really don't have control over what's happening to him when he leaves for the end of the day. You know, I can bring in his family, I can try to engage them with different strategies and resources, but ultimately it's I can't drag him there myself. And I think it also ties into that myth of the teacher's job is, um, you know, to fill our students' head with knowledge, to get away from that empty vessel metaphor as well. Um, because as a teacher, I think it's also important to recognize that success is going to mean really different things to different students and that your job as a teacher isn't to prescribe your definition of success to students and get them all to that exact same place, but recognize that they're going to want to go off and explore different career paths and different life options. And um, as a teacher, your role is to set them up for success for whatever they decide their definition of success is or whatever it might be. Mm. Welcome. Yeah, yeah, so so kind of along that same vein too, um, you know, what is the one thing that you think all all students should be taught or should learn while they're in school? 
that it's very important for students to understand that the vast majority of the time, there is no one right way to do anything. Um, I think that it's really important to draw on students' natural funds of knowledge and their own experiences um, and their own way of thinking um, to show that there are many different ways to arrive at an answer. Um, I think if you take the example of mathematics teaching and how that's changed over the past few years, um, giving students options in different ways to solve problems rather than telling students that there's only one right way to do something. Mm. Yeah, that's all, and that goes along, you know, Kyle and I always said, we've been talking about that very same thing about giving students the opportunity to explore for themselves. Yes, very much so. You know, because the, the, the learning, the more time they spend in that creative zone, understand it while I'm creating it they'll they'll get to that remembrance which is the easy part the hard part is getting them to analyze the work that they've done and talk about what way you find it you know which way works best for you may not work better for someone else you may have a skill set that better applies this method versus this method and I think that whenever you approach students with here's a problem let's solve it together it opens up so much more creativity and confidence in students that I have a voice and I can I can determine what works. Yeah, exactly. And if you're doing collaborative work saying, oh, that's really interesting. You solved a problem that way. Did anyone else solve it differently? So that right. was like everybody's experiences, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So... Like I said, I, I really enjoyed following uh, your your Instagram this summer. I was very jealous of all your adventures. So can you just start out talking about uh, where you went on your Africa trip? Sure. Um, so I received a fellowship from uh, Fund for Teachers, and I do encourage any K-12 educator out there to look into it. I believe their application opens the very beginning of October. Um, and what you can do through Fund for Teachers is design your own professional development plan. And that could include going to a workshop or a conference, or in my case, traveling and doing a bit of research um, on your own and you know, getting your hands on things as an educator. Um, so they'll award up to $5,000 individually or $10,000 as a group. Um, and it's really about the strength of your proposal. So most of the work that I've done has revolved around anti-social justice um, in the classroom, in the schools. So I wanted to go to a place that might have been grappling with similar issues and maybe had discovered a different way to approach them with learners. Um, so I wrote my application to go to South Africa and look at how topics like race and apartheid and oppression and slavery and colonization are approached with learners and youth in that country. Um, and so I was there for three weeks, and it was a really quite amazing trip. So when you say you were doing you know, research, what specifically were you were you looking for uh, and kind of what what did you learn like what was your greatest takeaways from that research that you did while you were there um so one of my concerns that i had to write into my application which actually ended up being true is that i wasn't actually sure if topics like race and apartheid are being taught in schools and from the majority of folks that i spoke to um it sounds like they're actually not despite apartheid ending in the early 90s, that they haven't really figured out a way to address it in an equitable way within school. 
um, it seemed like a lot of the wealthier private schools had found ways to engage their students around these topics, and their teachers had also been educated, but in terms of public schools, particularly in the townships, um, which historically have been where black and colored people live in South Africa, that these things were not coming up at all. Um, and also when I say colored, colored is a racial classification term in South Africa used to describe people who are biracial and multiracial, not used in the same way that we use that term here. Um, and what I found interestingly was it had mostly to do with the era in which the teachers themselves were educated, um, because in a, under the apartheid government with the Bantu Education Act, if you are black, you received the lowest quality education, like something that would go no further than if you were going to become like a gardener or a custodian. Um, and what a lot of people shared with me is that they found that with this generation of teachers, <clears throat> they're really perpetuating these ideas of like anti-blackness and colonialized history um, and aren't doing a very good job of educating students with multiple multiple perspectives and taking an honest look at the country's history. Um, and so that was really interesting for me to um, learn about from the people in the communities. Um, one experience that I really loved um, was I actually got to go to a juvenile detention facility um, that uses restorative justice practices um, with the young men who are incarcerated there. And it, it completely blew my mind. Like, I visited um, a prison here in the United States, and it could not have been more different. And then hearing from these young men who have gone through these processes was just such an amazing testament to how powerful restorative justice can be if used consistently um and appropriately mm. and just just so you know i can be clear and our listeners can be clear what what do you mean when you say restorative justice so with restorative justice it seeks to uh, bring back the victim and the perpetrator of a crime. Um, and so in the case of the young men that I was speaking to, one young man in particular, um, who was 20 years old, was incarcerated when he was 15. And part of that restorative justice practice was working with counselors to come to understand the perspective of the person and actually the entire community of people who he had harmed. So getting into the mindset of the person he hurt, how might it have felt, um, what might it have been like for that person family member and friends and then eventually actually coming face to face with the person he harmed to apologize and make repairs and he described it as an incredibly intense period of time where he fell into a deep depression when he actually began to understand how much harm he caused but it's only with that truth piece um, can reconciliation really happen um, so to see that on a micro level was incredibly powerful for me um, and also thinking about in a much larger scale what do we need to do in our country to expose the truths of our nation's history especially around racial injustice and oppression in order to move forward um, so a lot of these experiences planted a lot of seeds of how can I begin to build on these practices with my students to think about you know long-term progress for our communities Mm. Wow. You know, that's awesome. I just finished um, Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime. So good. <laughs> and so amazing. And, you know, I, re I recommended it to every, every teacher that I know that teaches social studies or history um, because I'm saying this is a part that we need to know about because he goes in very good detail about the life kind of an unfiltered life from a, from an unfiltered lens 
and I love it uh, that it shines a light on many of the same things that you're talking about. And when I read the book, I hadn't read his bio. And then I'm thinking he's a lot older than he was. Then when I saw that he was only 34 years old, it really hit me that he experienced this in a time when we here in America thought that everything was good. You know, where we were turning a blind eye to a lot of things, but he was experiencing things that we thought we could not be possibly happening still anywhere else in the world. And I think that that just kind of really helped me get a perspective of how how powerful, again, that, that written language of exploring who we are, like you say, understanding what's been done in order to fix it so it doesn't perpetuate. Yeah. And a big thing that I found very interesting um, was just to really reinforce the idea that race is such a social construct. Because to look at how we define race in America versus how race is defined in South Africa, it's just like whoever's in charge gets to make these decisions. And here are a lot mm-hmm. of concrete examples that it's completely defined by people and power and that these systems are set up in order to oppress others and restrict power. Um, I read a bit about how under the apartheid government, more than a thousand people actually changed their color or race under these classifications. Um, so hundreds of colored people actually be had like a white classification and how many white people became colored and how many Asian people became white. Like it was really, it's just really insane that we can put these labels into place and then that just becomes law. And this is the system, these are the systems under which people are grown up. And this is how resources are restricted, that education, um, you know, there are some disparities within the education system just based on what people look like. And these are all ideas constructed by people for really specific political purposes. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so you know, from, from your trip, you know, what, what will you specifically bring either to the research you do into social justice and anti-bias or, or into your classroom that you can, you know, really apply, like, with your kids and it and especially you know going into the the new job you're going to be stepping into soon um, justice piece is something that i really want to bring in and hopefully um work with other teachers to receive their training in this as well um because i've done restorative justice training um in previous years here in los angeles um but really trying to find opportunities for other teachers to engage with these because I think when you look at things like the school-to-prison pipeline and looking how children of color are disciplined in ways that are different than their peers who are white, um, these are things that impact our students every day. So I'm hoping to bring some of that experience into this new role. Um, I think the part about... um, the social construction of race and looking at how different countries and communities um, talk about and use race um, for some people's advantage and others' disadvantage will be really powerful for students to see, and I think they'll be able to latch on to that as well. Um, but also looking at how countries, um, like I said before, really need to come face-to-face with their histories. Um, and, you know, the United States history is not taught in a very honest and truthful way. There are so many myths that are still being perpetuated that prevent us from healing together as a country and as communities. Um, I think even if you look at things like the South African Bill of Rights or the Rwandan Bill of Rights, um, the really amazing thing to me is that after atrocities have committed in a lot of these places, 
they decide, you know, we're, we need a do-over. We're going to start over from scratch because what we were doing before isn't working anymore. Um, and what I think is really amazing about those two countries' documents is that in the first couple of paragraphs, both countries fully admit and own up to the atrocities that have been committed and then lay out what we're going to do next in order to make sure those things don't happen anymore. So comparing their legal documents, their constitutions with ours in America, I think can be a really powerful experience for students as well. One, and you know, reading reading your work and following you online, you know, you're a real advocate for, you know, not just, you know, African Americans or Hispanics, but also, you know, the history of how Americans have dealt with some of our Asian people, especially, you know, around the time of World War II. And I think that's, you know, like you said, that's a forgotten piece of of our history, the way we, you know, especially around the, the World War II time, the way um, we treated people of Asian descent that were citizens. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, and then when it became convenient, the narrative and say, oh no, Asians are the model minority, like other black and brown people. Why can't you get in line like the Asian communities have? Which is all, you know, political maneuvers in order to, you know, keep some in power and then segregate everybody else. You know, these are the truths that we need to talk about in schools. Absolutely. So, I mean, maybe this is a grandiose question, but, but how do we go about having these conversations you know, in classrooms and, you know, on a broader scale, talking about why we need to, you know, with people in power, talking about why we need to have these conversations in classrooms. In our average understanding, how are you going to ever broaden anyone's horizons if you stay within an insular group? Um, I think that starting based with what students experience and what they know about certain topics and what they are curious about certain topics, um, those for me are the most organic ways to engage with students. And I think it's also puts me in a safer place as a teacher where I'm not going to be accused of projecting my agenda onto my students if I'm simply asking, what do you know about something and what are you curious about? And then we can go from there. Um, I think it's actually much easier for me to work with youth because I think adults have so much they have so much baggage attached to so many of these topics that it's very hard for them to understand that you actually sometimes have to take yourself out of the equation first so you can look at a system as a whole and then think about how am I contributing to or perpetuating the system. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so kind of along that vein, shortly, shortly thereafter, I think you might have even said right after you were in South Africa, you were in Alabama, right? I was in Montgomery for a couple of days as well, and then all over the summer. Yeah, and so what what were you doing while you were in Montgomery? Um, so I was in Montgomery because um, I won the Teaching Tolerance Award for Excellence in Teaching this year, along with four other teachers from across the country. Um, and we were there for the Teaching Tolerance Advisory Board Summit and Award Ceremony. Um, and it was a really amazing experience. Awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. So what was, you know, beyond getting the award, what was the experience of being at that, that summit like? Um, it's amazing. I mean, the people at Teaching Tolerance, you would think that there's a staff of like 100 people putting out the work and the content um, that they're making available to educators for free every single day. But it's actually a very small team. Um, 
definitely helps that they have the resources and power of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Because imagine, like, um, teaching tolerance is, like, the educational branch of um, the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, And... It was, it was an incredible experience to meet with these educators from all over the country who are engaging in this work. Um, it made me feel far less isolated and gave me a lot of hope um, that through all of our work and outreach that we can really build critical mass in our country and help support other educators in engaging in social justice work as well. Um, so we got to hear from Dr. Linda Tropp, who presented research about how to build comfort within white teachers to engage in social justice in the classroom. Um, we heard from Dr. Hazan Kwame Jeffries, who's a professor at Ohio State, um, and contributed a lot on their teaching hard history curriculum, which focuses on teaching the history of slavery in our country, um, and hearing him talk about how we need to restructure um, history education and social studies in the United States was was amazing. Like it gave me a completely new sense of urgency and understanding for why this work matters and how I need to be doing it differently in my classroom moving forward. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like an incredible experience, and and like you said, the the fact that teaching tolerance is giving everything away that they have for free, I think, is a super super impressive. Um, did you get to do any you know kind of touristy stuff while you were in Montgomery? Um, we got to go to the new Legacy Museum, um, which is open a few months ago from the Equal Justice Initiative, um, which is Brian Stevenson's organization, and the museum is an incredibly it's an incredibly intense and raw experience, um, focusing on the legacy and history of lynching in our country. Um, and they do not hold back at all. There is no section of that museum where it's like, maybe we should water this down in case like kids are here. Um, it is graphic and it's emotional and it's painful, but it is so necessary that if you can't make it to Alabama, that you try to understand and do some research about our nation's history with its treatments of black people and i think being there you understand um why we're still in so much pain today like i i cannot understand why some people think that we're living in a post-racial society when there were people being lynched in our country less than 100 years ago um and that we still have a lot of evil to combat um you know, we are. We have to understand and own that we are a society that not only executed black people at will, but also made spectacle of it. That there are places in our country where lynching black people was a form of entertainment and community gathering. Um, places where kids would be brought with their families and you know, photographs of it would be sold as postcards and people would buy popcorn and just sit around and hang out while these things were happening that nobody really wants to come face to face with that, but that is our history. And unless we can confront those realities, we cannot move past them. We cannot move forward until we recognize what we have done. Mm. Right, and you know, it's interesting that you said that I just uh, was writing a response to um, an assignment that I had for a class, and we were talking about the story of Dr. Vivian Thomas, um, and the first open heart surgery, and the professor asked us if we thought situations that he was living in where he felt invisible still exist today, and 
one of the things that I said is that we have we we rarely have the conversation about those types of uh, atrocities, and until we do that, we can't, like you said, we can't begin to heal because you have to understand that those the the the, the descendants of those oppressed are are the ones who are living and trying to struggling right now in our society because they're being marked already by a society that has not come to grips with the fact that this is what took place. Mm-hmm. And I think our young kids are being robbed because I was fortunate. I had my great-grandparents, my great-grandfather and great-grandmother. They were slaves here in Texas. Um, they, they talked to us openly about what, what took place, the family members we lost that went on trips that never came back from. And it was just said that if you didn't come back home from the whole trip, they knew that back on the team, you were lynched somewhere along the side of the road. Um, and I think that without sharing that history with people, you, you kind of perpetuate that, that sense of oppression. Because now we're going to keep you in this position because you don't know any better. Right. Mm, and so, I, I and it's I, awesome that you want to deal with that in that light. Right. And I remember, Will, that time we were driving back from Albuquerque and we were in West Texas and there were cotton fields, like how emotional you got just, you know, thinking about that and, and how you told me about the stories you had heard from your family about what it was really like at that time. I mean, that 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 really surprised me that you were still so emotional about it just driving through cotton fields. Well, it's it's, it's, it's the... If you've never been there, you know, when we went to, when we go to East Texas as kids, I remember going out to the cotton fields and trying to pick cotton. And if you don't have the skill set for it, you're going to have bloody fingertips all day long. Because I mean, it's thorny and listening to how, you know, this is what was expected. You had to pull out so many bells of cotton every single day. And the expectation was if you fell short of that, then it came out in the stone grass, or it came out sometimes in, in the hide of somebody who, who they thought they had put in leadership to guide everybody to it. And I think seeing it is that symbolism of my people were killed because of this. My people were beaten because of this. And I think for me, being a father now, I don't let my daughter forget that the places we go right now, you know, a hundred years ago, we were not allowed. You know, the fact that I there is multiracial, that was not allowed. The fact that I've even completed school and gotten my degrees, at one point, that was not allowed. So, you know, just that reminder of what it was, so that it gives you a greater appreciation for what you have, which will lead to a greater elevation for the next generation. But again, we have to have those conversations about it. Mm-hmm. Honest conversation. Yeah. Yeah, so Liz, you know, as we kind of wrap this up and, and let you keep doing what you're doing, you posted on Instagram, it must have been yesterday or the day before, sometime recently about the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. And I like read through what you were saying, but even with what you were saying, I was still confused. Could, could you talk about that post a little bit and, and what you were kind of explaining in terms of social media with kids? Sure. Um, so this is something, it's called FERPA. Um, it's 
was a topic that um, our my school special ed department um, came to present to the rest of the staff about. And up until last year, I completely admit I didn't really know anything about this, and I really had to go back and retool what I was doing and some of my practices in order to make sure that I was protecting my students' confidentiality. Um, so the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act is a federal law that gives families protections um, regarding their children's um, education records. So that means things like report cards or transcripts or, you know, discipline write-ups, um, any contact between um, the school and the family, schedules, students' academic levels. Um, and while this exists primarily for parents, it gives it has a lot of guidelines and restrictions for teachers and schools about how to protect students' privacy and confidentiality. Um, so with regards to like things like Instagram or Facebook, um, on a really basic level, not posting pictures of your students' faces or things like student work um, that has anything identifiable, like their name on it. Um, that even if your school has families sign a media release policy, so maybe the school can put student pictures on their website, that's not the same thing as families giving you as a teacher the right to post pictures of a student or anything regarding their identity on your personal social media website or account or anything like that. Um, that most schools, um, and if educators are listening and they're confused about this, ask your administration about what your school's policy on what is directory information um, and what is ethical to use and what is not. Um, because there have been many cases where teachers have had their licenses revoked, there have been lawsuits um, where teachers have given away too much of their students' personal information on the internet. Um, this really resonated with me because last year um, during Autism Awareness Month, I saw so many teachers and like shockingly, a lot of them were special ed teachers who would post pictures with them and their students with the hashtag Autism Awareness. Um, not only is that a gross violation of students' privacy just in general, but also outing your student as being a special ed kid who has an IEP is against the law. Um, and for the number of teacher accounts where I see people posting pictures of their students, unless you have explicit parental or family consent, you cannot be doing that online. It is so important. A friend of mine even brought up um, that she felt that it's really unethical for newspapers, um, for media outlets to be posting pictures of immigrant children who are being detained at the border and separated from their families because those photos also violate those children's rights of privacy, particularly if they are not citizens of the United States. Um, so all this is really just put into perspective. A lot of what do I think is ethical um, to post is the if I'm posting a photo and a kid is in the picture, um, does the kid really need to be there? Is the post about like a teaching practice or a resource? Like, or am I just kind of posting this picture because I think people will think it's cute and then I can get more likes on it? Um, so really making sure that we are not exploiting our students in that sense, particularly if you're a teacher, who tries to monetize their social media presence at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's why I wanted to, to ask you that question too, because it's just, and, and I do think it's difficult for teachers because we live in such a social media world that kids, you know, they want to be in pictures and they want to do that and they want to have that stuff with their teachers. But I guess being that I have eight years of experience and I didn't even know that the um, 
Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act existed made me want to ask you about it because if I don't know about it and I specifically don't know the details, I I would imagine that I'm not the only one who's um, unaware of exactly what that is and what that means for us as teachers. Yeah, I think a lot of school administrations probably need to do a little bit of work on educating their staff around these things too. Um, because a lot of teachers could be getting into trouble for posting things regarding their students and not know. Um, so it's also really important for the school staff and the school administration to set that tone and create that culture where student confidentiality and privacy is a huge priority for us, not only just as a school, but legally mandated that we can't be doing these things to our students. One, and, and to your point too, I, I thought that, you know, when, the, when, families signed that release form that 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 meant it was you know fair game to to even just take pictures and stuff like that and you know we were we were careful about the pictures we took but i like i said i was i was really kind of taken back by your post and that's why i felt like i i I was actually glad that we were talking to you today because i wanted to get a little more clarification on it because i like i said i don't feel like i'm the only one who's a little bit in the dark on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the responses I got were um, a lot of confusion. Like, wait, what if, you know, the, it's like a Facebook account, but like the school runs the Facebook account, but maybe like I share a photo from that account. Um, you know, there is a lot of really gray area, but I think it's much better to err on the side of caution because you don't want to get slapped with a lawsuit. Mm. Um, and there are still times where I might post pictures of, student work and I'll blur out their name, but also reminding students that they're actually the owners of this work. So even if I, like sometimes I'll post um, journal prompts and student responses, but I'll always ask my students permission, like, hey, I really loved your response. Do you mind if I share this? And if they say no, like no negotiation, just I will not do it. Um, I have posted photos um, of students from like performances and things like that, but I will send a direct email to their parents saying, hey, this is the photo that I really loved. I'd love to share this. Is that okay with you? So I also have like written consent as well in email. Um, and if a parent or a student ever asks me to take something down, even if their name isn't associated, that they own it and I will without question. So I guess what you're really saying to teachers is just make sure that you have those, those, those commissions from the parent to do that. Because I know for me, even when I'm taking pictures of friends, before I post it on social media, I'm always like, hey, are you good with me posting these pictures on social media? Just out of respect of them, because not everybody, not a lot of my, a lot of my friends don't have a social media presence and maybe not want their picture exposed like that. Um, so, you know, I think I think you're right at that. I know I was familiar with Facebook, but I think it wasn't through this context of public school. It was when I joined, when I started doing my master's studies, we talked about Facebook. Uh, in our school law class, but as far as training on it directly, I don't, I don't really remember it. And I lost special ed. I mean, we were taught there are certain things that we could, could and couldn't do, but I don't think that there was ever any. I don't remember, and I could be wrong. I could have forgotten, but I don't remember uh, actually going through the training on purpose. So. Thank you. With me going back into the classroom, thank you, because that's going to help me out a lot going into this next school year. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, up until this time, like last year, I was not aware of it either. And then as soon as I found out, I was like, oh, crap, like I need to go back and delete things and fix things and um, really just be very mindful of this moving forward. Um, you know, we, we actually had um, an educational like tech consultant come talk to our school, like mainly for the parents, um, because, you know, navigating social media and age where as adults, like we have not grown up with this um, is really tricky and really challenging. But something that she said really resonated with me, like thinking about every every photo you post of a student or a child contributes to their digital footprint. And we know that even if we delete things, that the record of those never really goes away. Um, uh-huh. And that our students are, you know, elementary age when they're really young and they don't have a say over what's there or what's, what isn't. By the time they grow up and it still exists, like, they might care, you know? They might mind a lot that these photos and things are on the internet. Like, I know I'm an adult, but if I had things that I didn't give consent to when I was a child still floating around on the internet, like, appropriate or inappropriate, you know, like, it it would really upset me. It would really bother me. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and it even too, like, and the example I would give, like, my, I have a, I have a private Instagram that is just like my friends and my family and I will post pictures of my nephews on there because it's private and only my friends can see it but my sister has explicitly said cuz our our nonprofit Instagram is is public and my sister's like please don't post pictures of the boys on there because for the same reason she doesn't want them to get out or for people to be able to track where where I was or where they were and it it just like I said, I, I was just really struck by by what you wrote, and I'm like I said, I'm I'm glad as well because I think it's in a world we live in, and it's such a fine line when you know. I guess I would be interested too, and maybe this is kind of off topic, but does it work both ways with kids putting you know taking pictures with us? Is there a conflict of interest if a kid wants to take a picture with a teacher and post it to their social media? That's a really good question. I would hope that any kid who is doing that would ask permission. Um, I know when parents have taken photos of me with their students, they'll usually ask if it's okay if they post a picture of like your student with their teacher. Um, so which I usually say that's totally fine. Um, but I'm not sure if that's a really good question. Yeah. Just a, a, a different world that we live in now than not, not too long ago. Very much so. Well, I was thinking that I was like, 10 years ago, we wouldn't have even been having this conversation. You know? Yeah. <laughs> right. But, hey, the society we live in. Right, right. So, we, uh, we, we super appreciate you coming on, Liz. So, we want to make sure we wrap the questions up here so you can carry on with the rest of your day. So, we just got a, a few kind of wrap up questions, and you can answer them, you know, however you choose, whether it's based on your teaching experience or not. So um, the first one is, if you could give one piece of advice to a teacher who is struggling, what would it be? It would definitely be to focus on what you can directly impact and control versus what you can't. Like going back to the example I gave um, at the beginning of this interview, recognizing like I can't follow my students home 
so I can try to provide them with support and resources, but I can't stress too much about what happens when they're not there. Like, that's not a good use of my energy and my time. I can absolutely care about them and be concerned, um, but I need to focus on what I can do to support them while they're in my classroom and while they're at school. Like, how can I build relationships with them? How can I, you know, support them? Um, How can I provide them with assistance that they need? but I think so often as teachers, we start to spiral around things that are so out of our control. They just make us feel very helpless and overwhelmed. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you could recommend one book to our listeners, which one would it be? Oh, my number one pick these days is White Fragility by Robin DeAngelo. Um, came out a couple of months ago. I think that if you are a white anti-racist educator, citizen individual, um, it is an absolute necessary read. If even, it's just for everyone. Like if hearing the title White Fragility makes you feel defensive and triggered, you should read it. And if you think that it doesn't apply to you, you should also read it. Um, It just lies out um, a lot of the issues that white folks have in discussing race and bias and prejudice um and i think it's the number one book that white folks in particular need to read in order for us to start coming together and having these conversations in a place of openness Hmm. so for teachers who who want to do better um you know with anti-bias education what's one piece of advice you would give them yeah Um, any any teachers or or let's let's just say me i'm i'm a very um privileged grew up middle class small town wisconsin white person um who grew up with very little um diversity around me and now i'm a teacher and i'm going i'm going to an urban area where there's going to be a lot of um different cultures so you know because I think there are a lot of those. Actually, I know there are a lot of those. So, a teacher, a teacher like me, what would you, what advice would you give? Um, start by educating yourself. I mean, frankly, Google is a super easy to use, simple tool. Um, you can start by googling things like, "What can I do as a white ally? What can I do to be an interrupter to racial injustice?" Um, the beautiful thing about Amazon is if you, you know, type in a book title, you're going to get a lot of other like recommended responses and recommendations as well. Um, starting to look at books like Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Dr. Lee, Dr. Um, Beverly Daniel Tatum. That's a really good place to start. Um, looking to see what kind of work has been done in these areas beforehand, particularly by people of color who have been engaged in this work for a very long time. Um, there are also some really awesome social media groups um, for like white anti-racist educators who seek to do the educating within the white community and recognizing that it's not the responsibility of people of color to educate all white people about these issues. Like there's already a lot of really great work being done if you just go on your computer and, and start to seek it out. But just definitely understand that you do not have to start from scratch. Like it's already out there. It's already happening. It's moving. Um, but if you look in the right places that you will definitely find probably more resources than you can ever absorb. Do you think that, um, kind of piggyback on that, do you think that it's important for educators or 
who, for white educators coming into urban environments, to first own, as we were talking about earlier, own the, the discrepancies and the disparities of our of our of our uh, American culture first. Because I can't really say going out and looking at a book like Ally, if I'm a white person, then I don't really know how to take that if I don't if I have not really accepted why it's important for me to become an ally. Right. So a book like White Fragility, I think, will help you unpack your identity, who you are, and where your ideas and biases come from, things that you might not have ever considered before. I think a lot of the work really needs to begin with identity development, like the same way that we do it with students. Like you need to understand yourself before you can move forward, before you can go anywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. So looking at your family, your culture, your beliefs, your upbringing, um, and understanding that you might be uh, um, carrying privilege with you in ways that you didn't really recognize. You know, if it's a matter of physical ableness, mental ableness, money, education, um, you know, the neighborhood you where you grow up in, um, that we have to unpack all of those things first. And I think until you have a really solid understanding of who you are, it's very hard to engage with that work with students. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we ask you the final question, Liz, we just want to thank you again for, um, you know, being, being on the podcast a second time and, and for expanding, expanding our awareness of things that we didn't know about. Cause I, you know, it's, we've had, you know, a few conversations with people like you and, um, other people like in the hip hop ed movement and stuff like that. And I, I, I have to really, I mean, it's really talking with people like you have, opened up my eyes to really, like you said, having to look at what my biases are and and what my privilege tells me I can do. And so I'm super grateful that you are doing the work you're doing and you're willing to share it with us. It means a lot. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me that platform. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to, I'm going to, this just came off the top of my head to be the final question, but so in, in your world, what will schools look like? 10 years from now, if, if things progress the way you hope that they do and, and changes start to happen? Oh my gosh, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> we will be living in a world where students are going to be the drivers of their own learning and their understanding. That teachers are going to be more um, as facilitators rather than the ones standing up at the front of the classroom telling their kids what they should be reading and writing and, you know, assigning workbook pages and things like that. Um, I think there will be more, I would hope there would be more connections between what's happening in schools and what's happening out in our communities and within the world, um, that students are being given relevant practical information, that all students' identities are being honored and there is space at the table for everybody. that you don't need people like LeBron James to come in and build the dream school because that's something that our government is going to be doing on their own because it's a priority for them. Um, That we are not going to have success indicators based on what students look like or where they live or what they can or cannot do. Um, So just to start, just a couple, you know. (laughs) I, I, that's, that's awesome. And we will, we will we'll do the best we can to uh, contribute to that dream. 
Yeah, likewise. There are really good teachers out there. Um, and I know that this work can feel very, very isolating. And it's hard to do when you feel like, you know, you're the only one who cares about it. But if you are listening and you are that person at your school, you are not alone. There is a large community of people out there who care about it just as much as you do. And all I can do is just continue to speak the truth. Hmm. Liz, thank you again so much for your time and for coming back on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.